being that wake-up call. That's, that's why it says, Ephesians 5.14, this is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. We're believing for amazing things that awaken. And um, I guess I just want to make a confession. One of my pet peeves in life is waking people up. I don't know what it is. I hate to wake somebody up. Like it's just, it, it's, the, it's always the last thing I want to do. I, it's something about the peacefulness of sleep. I don't know if that's what it is or if it's the faces people make when you do wake them up. Like I don't know what it is about it. I just hate to wake people up. Even when my dog is sleeping, I'll tiptoe around him, try to let him stay. I don't know what it is. Like I hate to wake people up. And, and uh, sometimes my wife will say, hey, can you run upstairs and wake up? And she'll mention one of our kids. Can you wake and I'm, I'm always just like, could we figure out some other way? Like maybe we'll just let nature take its course and they'll wait. Like, I don't know what it, I just have never, I just have never relished that assignment of waking somebody up. And uh, I was on a plane this a uh, couple months ago. I was on my way to preach a camp and uh, something unique happened that, I mean, well, it's instead of telling you, maybe I should just show you. Okay, so I'm on, on a flight on my way to preach somewhere. Here's what happened. So there was a, uh, a group of, I think what was an ex, uh, exchange student group that was on my plane and God only knows what time zone they were on. And this poor little girl was sitting next to me. That was actually, that was actually a more uh, upright pose. There was a point at which she was all, just all on me like a human pillow. I didn't know, I hate to wake people up, right? I didn't know what to do. And I felt so uncomfortable and I felt like it almost someone would maybe look and think it was even inappropriate. I'm like, I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> and we hit some turbulence and it jarred her awake. I have never been so thankful to God for turbulence. <laughs> Man, I was like, thank you, Jesus, for turbulence. Uh, but we as Christians, here's the thing. We as Christians, we cannot afford spiritually to have that same reservation when it comes to waking people up spiritually. I mean, that's, that's, that's our calling. That's why we exist. That's why we're still on this earth is to, is to spread the gospel to, we, we come into contact with people every day who are spiritually asleep. And it's our, uh, it's our role, it's our privilege, it's our calling uh, to be a spiritual wake-up call in people's lives. And that's what I'm gonna share uh, for a few minutes on the thought of being the wake-up call. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And I love this uh, story. This really happened. Mark chapter 25, verse 21. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it will be on the gigantic Bible behind me. But it says this in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was there by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, oh, he falls at Jesus' feet, he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will he be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And as Jesus is on his way with Jairus, uh, something happens. We're going to skip ahead to verse 35. But what we're skipping is the moment at which they're on their way to this synagogue leader's house. And a woman 
who's suffering an issue of blood, she hears about Jesus, she decides if I can make contact with him, if I can touch him, I'll be healed. And so she reaches out and she touches Jesus as he's on his way and Jesus senses that healing has gone out of him and so he turns and says, what happened? And, and uh, everybody's like, well, everybody's touching. And he said, no, 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 someone got healed. She's down on the ground, yes, it was me. And so all of this happened, it was a uh, bit of a divine interruption in, as to where Jesus was heading. And then right at the end of that divine divine interruption, verse 35 we pick up, and while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus with the report. And they said this to the synagogue leader. They said, your daughter is dead. Don't, why, why bother the teacher anymore? And overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and, and wailing. And he went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And they went in where the child was and he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, uh, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and begins to walk around. She's 12 years old, the word of God tells us. And at, at, the, at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. I love this passage of scripture. I love this story because it is a real, raw example of revival. I mean, it fits the definition of revival. We put a lot of things in the church world under the umbrella of revival. We put breakthrough and, and healing and infilling and, and, and the, you know, maybe peace that we desire. We could put a lot of things under the umbrella of revival, and I think it fits. However, at its core, revival is when something goes from dead to life. And so this is an example of physical revival. This, this little girl is dead and she's back to life. And uh, that's what spiritual revival, that is still the greatest miracle of all. Church, it's still the greatest miracle of all. When someone is dead in their sin and they come alive to Christ because of his grace, because of his mercy. That's still the greatest miracle of all. And, I, and then this, uh, this passage and this story of, of a, a real uh, uh, physical revival, it, uh, it, it shows us something. And, and, and I would like to bring out this, that this little girl, she would not have experienced revival if it had not been for somebody else. If she was left to her own devices, she didn't have any. But because someone else acted, someone else became uh, her wake-up call and she experienced revival. And I feel like God's issuing a, a message to the church. God's issuing a, a reminder to us that we are to be the wake-up call for a lost and dying world. There are people in your life that you walk by every single day who are spiritually dead, spiritually asleep, and God is speaking to you about being their wake-up call. And if you are going to accept that assignment to be a spiritual wake-up call, I'd say first thing, and we pull this out of the scripture, the first thing you'll have to find is you'll have to find your cry. You'll have to find what you're crying out for. I love that when Jairus comes and he sees Jesus, he, he falls at his feet in verse 22 and 23. And the Bible says he pleaded with him earnestly, said, my little daughter is dying, please come. 
please come. He, he's on, the, on his knees begging, crying out to Jesus. Now here's what we probably can safely assume about Jairus. He was a wealthy man. In his uh, position as a synagogue leader, he would have been pretty well off. And so no doubt he would have had enough money to try a lot of different things with this little girl that's dying. No doubt he probably would have tried doctors. And maybe he's at the point that doctors are throwing up his hand, their hands and saying, we don't know what else to do. And so maybe Jairus has tried everything else. And finally he goes, I have no other hope. I have no other uh, uh, option but to find Jesus. And he goes and he falls at his feet. He says, Jesus. And I'm I'm sure he's thinking, I've, I've tried everything else. And so Jesus, you're my last hope. Jesus, you're my only hope. Can you come and do this? I'm crying out for my daughter. And I'll bet Jesus is thinking this. I was always your only hope. Sometimes when we've tried everything that we can try and we've tried to fix things ourselves, and we try to spend our energy and spend our money and spend, and we just throw our hands and we go, I don't know what else to do, Jesus, but to cry out to you. And I feel like many times Jesus said, I've been waiting for this because I am the answer. No matter what you're going through, Jesus tells you today, he is the answer. And no matter what the people in your life are going through, whether they currently believe on God or not, whether they currently attend church or not, whether they're currently angry at God or angry at the church, Jesus is still the answer. So anytime there's the, the pain of, of, of light and hurt and confusion and, and death and brokenness and all of these things, Jesus, someone has to come in and cry and declare Jesus the answer. And that's what Jairus does in this situation. Makes me want to ask you this question, and I, I want to ask it apart from just being a part of a sermon, because you could you could pass over these 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 questions, but I want you to really think about this. What are you crying out for right now? Like over the last seven days, over the last two weeks, what have you been crying out for to to Christ? And the fact is, some of us we might have a hard time answering that question. We have to think about, well, well, I don't really, you know, I haven't really been. And I would say that if we're not currently crying out for something, then there's some things in your life that are missing. Because there are some aspects of God's power that he has reserved as a response to your cry. As a re he's reserved it as a response to your prayer. And so we constantly need to be crying out to God. We constantly need to be saying, God, uh, I need you in this area of my life. And God, I'm believing you to, to come through in this area of my life. And God, this, this season of my life, I'm experiencing brokenness, brokenness here. And this season of my life, I'm experiencing doubt here. And God, this is causing me pain. We constantly need to be declaring that Christ is who I'm crying out to. But I would also ask you this, who are you crying out for? Who are you interceding for? That's what intercession is. Intercession is to pray for somebody, but not like, not like you simply hear, like, I pray for somebody. No, no, no. It's praying in the place of somebody. It's somebody that's not crying out for themselves. And so you step in and you say, because my son and my daughter's not crying out, I'll cry out in their place. Because my coworker's not crying out for themselves, I'll cry out in their place. Who are you crying out for? And the reason why we would cry out for those that are away from God is, 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 is greatly said in this quote by J. Sidlow Baxter. Let me read it. He said, men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, and despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. They're helpless against our prayers. You may lose some arguments with somebody. 
but they're helpless when you decide you're going to pray for those that are away from God. Not only are we called to cry out for those that are away from God, but we're called to cry out for, for those who would reach them. I, I saw two articles this week. Uh, one was from Fortune magazine. It was a, a story that was published uh, two years ago. So it was August of 2017. And in that article and in that story, it was talking about the shortage of migrant workers in the state of California. And it was talking about how vegetable prices were gonna probably go up and uh, that many of the counties in California were millions of dollars down from their normal revenue. And it came down to the fact that, uh, that fruit was out there to be harvested, that because they didn't have enough people to be out there uh, to get it, to harvest it, it said fruit was rotting before they could before they could harvest it, before they could bring it in. A year later, another story is, is uh, printed in um, the Tri-City Herald, which is uh, a newspaper in the uh, southeastern uh, Washington state. Again, talking about the apple orchards and, the, uh, and, and cherry uh, fields, cherry tree fields. And uh, one guy was quoted in this story, and his quote uh, jumped out at me. He's the executive director of Washington Farm Labor Association. And this is what he said. He said, the crops are great. I don't know if he was trying to preach, but he started preaching. He said, the crops are great. He said, there's just one problem. There's a shortage of workers to bring in the harvest. I don't know if that guy was trying to quote Jesus or not. But in, in, in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus said very similar thing, but he wasn't talking about vegetables and he wasn't talking about, uh, you know, apples or, or cherries. Jesus was talking about souls and he said this to the disciples. He said, the harvest is plentiful. There's no shortage of people that are ready to make decisions for me. There's no shortage of people who are at the point in life where they're throwing their hands up saying, I need an answer. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Not only are we praying for the lost, but we're praying that the church would be mobilized. Let's over these next seven, eight days, let's pray for one another, right? That we would go out and we bring in a great harvest that's ripe and ready. So we've got to establish our cry if we're gonna be a wake-up call for our generation. Also to be a spiritual wake-up call, I, I see that, that Jairus, not only does he cry out, but he does so with confidence. Jairus finds a place of confidence. We've gotta find confidence in this thing. Verse 23, Jairus says to Jesus, he says, please come and put your hands on her, on my daughter so that she will be healed and live. I love that place of confidence that he's coming from. He's declaring it. If you, if you put your hands on her, uh, I know something's gonna happen. If you come into contact with her, I know something's gonna happen. And he, he goes on in, in verse uh, 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and they said, your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? And over, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. So Jairus has this moment of confidence and a thing that we would need to understand about Jairus and his position, position is that it would not be looked upon very highly that he goes to Jesus, not as a synagogue leader. All of his peers that he worked with pretty much would have been against everything that Jesus stood for. And so for Jairus to come and, and ask Jesus and to do so so publicly, oh, that was a great risk for him. But it seems as though that although that would be something that we'd say, man, he, he should be 
fearful to do, it seems as though his faith was greater than his fear. And so he has a level of faith that involves some risk to it. And it's because of that that he sees revival in his family. Because of that, he goes to Jesus and says, if, if you touch her, I just know that something's going to happen. There is, uh, there is some risk that he puts to his faith. And I want you to imagine today, like if there was hanging down from the, from the ceiling of this building, I want you to imagine this gigantic pendulum that I could bring this way and I would let it go and it would swing, right? And it would swing the distance this way, very, very proportionate to the distance that I pull it this way. Does that make sense? And um, many times that's how successful we are really in any of our endeavors. It has to do with how far we're willing to go this direction. And in other words, like however much effort I'm willing to put into something is how much effectiveness I'll see with what it is that I'm doing. I guess you could look at it this way, like, uh, like many of you, if, you, if you're committed to the gym, I have a commitment to the gym. Uh, here's my commitment to the gym. I, I go to the gym at least once or twice a year. And, and that's whether I'm busy or whether I got a lot going on. Uh, that's my commitment. And if you go to the gym and, and you just kind of, you put your little pretty favorite little workout outfit on and you got your little headband and you got a towel and you're just walking around the gym just trying to look good and you're patting sweat that hadn't been broke yet. You hadn't even started anything. You're already patting the sweat on your, and you uh, walking by the machines, you're constantly stretching, just constantly getting ready, kind of loosening out, whatever. And uh, then you walk by, well, he's on that machine. I'll wait till he gets off that one. And you just, and you spend about an hour in the gym just kind of walking around doing your thing and then you kind of leave and that's just it, right? You haven't really worked. You haven't really put anything into it and you leave and you go stand in front of me. You go, man, why are I not seeing any results yet? Because you know the phrase, no pain, no gain. Think about the pendulum again. However much pain I'm willing to endure as I lift those weights and move those dumbbells, however much pain I'm willing to endure is how much muscle gain you'll see on my body. You'll see the change happening. Well, the same with our effectiveness when it comes to reaching people who need Jesus. A lot of times in the church, we like to stay right in here in the safe zone, not risking a whole lot, not, uh, not fearing a whole lot. You know what? We see very little result in that. You know when we see result is when we're willing to risk. We're willing to step out and say, I'll risk my reputation so that I can see great revival in somebody's life. I'll risk some discomfort in my life so that somebody else can have their life be different. That's that pendulum that would swing. And Jairus is way, he's swinging the pendulum big time because he's taking a big risk. You know, in the, in the seat pockets in front of you, there's a card that on this side just has the Awaken logo and on the other side it has, has five names, uh, five spots to write down names. And I want you to go ahead and grab one of those. You don't have to start filling it out now, but as we go through this message, I believe, I believe that God may put some people on your heart that maybe you should take a risk for. Put some people on your heart that maybe you should uh, risk the rejection for so that they could see revival. Put some people on your heart that maybe this week you'll begin to cry out for and intercede for and pray for them in their place. And so as we go through the remaining moments of this message there on all of our campuses, I want you just to hear from God as maybe a face pops in your mind. You can just jot that name down and at the end of the service, we're gonna pray over those together. So Jairus has this moment of, of confidence where he goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, this is going to work. Like, if you'll touch her, she'll, be, she'll live. But then, but then the friends show up. 
Then the people from his home show up and they say, oh, by the way, your daughter's dead. Like, don't bother him any longer. And Jesus overhears this conversation. And that's when he said, don't be afraid, just believe. But if you go with a very literal word for word translation from the Greek to the English, this is what Jesus said to him. He said, be not afraid, go on believing. Oh, I like that phrase. Go on believing. What he was saying to Jairus is saying, look, you already took the risk. You already came publicly and you put your faith and your trust and your confidence in me. Now, just because a report came that, that we don't understand, Jairus, don't be afraid. Go on believing. I believe God would say that to some of you in this room, that though the report may not look that great, you believed at one point and then the report came. Jesus would say to you, hey, don't be afraid. Go on believing. And somebody might say, yeah, but I've been praying for them. I've been praying for them for a long time, pastor. I know, don't be afraid. Go on believing. Yeah, but you don't understand what my kids are starting to do and what the, man, they, they, I asked them before and they, they said they don't wanna come. Don't be afraid. Go on believing. Yeah, but you don't know how my coworkers act and how they talk. Jesus would say to you, don't be afraid. Go on believing. Let's keep our confidence where our confidence belongs. And if we're gonna be somebody's wake-up call, there's also gotta be a clearing, a clearance that would happen. And Jesus shows up at Jairus' house, ready for revival. And uh, there's all this mourning and all of this commotion going on. And in the midst of all this commotion, Jesus says, why all this commotion? He says, the child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, which is the, the verbiage there is very forceful. That was not a little, that was not a little cute Jesus saying, hey, would you guys mind? No, that was a get out. Like, you're done. He puts them all out and he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and they went in where the child was. Now this commotion that Jesus and, and Jairus and three of these disciples come in on, it was there because it was a very, cultural tradition that when a family experienced death, they would literally hire mourners. They were professional mourners. Uh, I don't know if these were people who, who would be great actors or if they would just be so sympathetic and empathetic that they could, they could just really burst out in tears, but they would hire professional mourners to come in with the family in the home. And these professional mourners would cry and weep and wail. And they would lead the family in grieving and in lamenting the loss of their, of their loved one. And so that's what's going on as Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and it's because the girl physically is dead. There's, there's, they're not any doubt in that. And so she's gone. And so they've already hired and these people are wailing and moaning and, and, and weeping. And, and uh, when Jesus Jesus gets there, I think he makes this decision. I think he decides that is not the message that I want filled up in this house right now. That's not the attitude that I want in this environment right now. Those aren't the words I want spoken in this environment right now. That's not the behavior I want in this environment right now. I think Jesus going, all of those words, all those attitudes, all that sound, all those behaviors, those are actually contradicting what I'm getting ready to do. And so he clears out all the noise, all the commotion that doesn't line up with revival, doesn't line up with what Christ is getting ready to do. He's getting ready to do a miracle. And he says, if, if the message doesn't line up with my miracle, then you can just head on out. Now, we as people who would say, God, I want you to use me to be somebody's wake-up call, 
We've got to figure out, are there areas in my life, attitudes in my life, added, uh, uh, words that I use in my life, reactions in my life that are contradicting the message of the power of, of Jesus Christ, the power to save, the power to set free. That's why the message of the gospel is best told by those who have been set free, those who have been truly redeemed. And our life has to tell that story. Second um, Corinthians says something that is uh, so profound. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 19. Now, now lean into this passage. Look what it says. It said, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. We understand that. God so loved the world, he sends Jesus into the world to reconcile us to God. He's reconciling us to God through Jesus, so we understand that. And he says, because of that, he's not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, okay, this is getting heavy now, he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, it gets even heavier. Therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Wow, we're Christ, as though, it gets even heavier, as though God were making his appeal through us. Boy, that'll change your Monday morning. I mean, you're not just walking up into work like half exhausted because it's Monday. No, you're walking into work as Christ ambassador. Your life and your message and your words and your attitude, God is making his appeal through you. Wow. That's why it's important that we clear out any message, anything that contradicts with the life-altering power of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's contact in this story. If we're gonna be somebody's spiritual wake-up call, there's gonna be contact. In verse 41, Jesus takes this little girl by the hand, and he says, little girl, get up. And when he, when he says little girl, it's a, it was really a term of endearment. It was really like someone saying, Hey honey, or if you maybe a, a little boy, you'd say, Hey buddy, it's something like that. It was a very sense of, 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 of endearment. He says, Hey honey, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stands up and begins to walk around once she comes into contact with Jesus. Now, some people, some people come into contact with Jesus a little bit more on their own. Matter of fact, right, this interruption that we talked about as they're on their way to Jairus' house, this woman has a 12-year condition of an issue of blood. She's, she's uh, suffered with this. She's, she's tried everything she can. The Bible said in, that, in this passage, she hears about Jesus, and she thinks, if I touch him, I'll be... She hears about Jesus, and she decides, I'm gonna get in contact with him. She presses through the crowd. She reaches, and she touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed. Now, she did hear, she heard about Jesus. Somebody told her, but then she kind of took it on herself to make that contact happen. And maybe someone's in this room, maybe that's a little bit of our story. Like, no, I just drove by here and saw the church and felt like I wanted to come through and, and God, I, I, I found Jesus. But listen, there are some people that are not gonna come into contact with Jesus on their own. And this little girl is an example of that, right? She came into contact with Jesus, but it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for somebody else. And so we gotta figure out, I gotta do everything I can do so that those around me that need a contact with Jesus Christ, I gotta do everything I can do to get them in contact with him. 
Uh, I've invited some friends to, to come up and, and, and share with me today. Uh, Joe and Natalie Barnowski, would you guys step on up and we can, on all of our campus, go ahead and give them a little uh, welcome. Amen. Joe uh, grew up, born in this church, grew up at this church and went to FCA, Faith Christian Academy here. And um, they're now serving as the uh, um, Youth Alive missionaries for the state of Florida, uh, go on mobilizing students to reach other students on the high school campuses. Joe, tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing and, and uh, how God's using you. Yeah, uh, so we get to opportunity to be missionaries to the schools here in Florida, and we challenge young people to be evangelists at their schools. And uh, part of the way that we're able to do that is uh, there's really three ways. One is we, we raise up campus missionaries, students that are gonna be evangelists. Second, uh, we launched a, a, a conference that we do every year. Five years ago, we launched it, and we uh, see about 1,000 students come in every year that we train to be evangelists and to reach their friends. And then the last thing is we do outreaches and uh, school assemblies. So we go into the schools, and uh, we'll do a school assembly there and do an outreach afterwards, and we've seen over 10,000 people come to Christ as a result of wow. those. So, awesome. yes. And uh, this is Joe's wife, Natalie. She's also incredibly involved in all of this. And, uh, but Natalie, you're, you weren't on the trajectory. This is not an automatic thing. You're not uh, growing up in church. Um, tell us a little bit how that, that came about. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, the reason why I work so hard to reach the schools myself is because I very vividly remember what it felt like walking through those dark hallways and not having the hope of Jesus, not having the joy of Jesus. I remember how heavy and burdened down I felt and that's why I fight every single day to reach those students. See, I didn't grow up a Christian. In fact, uh, for my entire life, my mom dealt with a drug addiction and I have so many negative memories uh, surrounding my family and my home. I can remember her hiding the drugs in the laundry room away from my sister and I, and, and she would go and sneak in there and she would do that when nobody was looking. And, and all of these memories were so heavy and I would carry them through the hallways of my school. And when I was 15 years old, my mom actually walked out on our family. She left and she never came back. A year later, I was, I was 16 now, and at the age of 16, it was October, and I was a sophomore in high school. I'll never forget, three things happened that month that I will never forget. My mom passed away from the drug addiction. My dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but I walked into Extreme Youth Church for the very first time. Praise God. But what's so powerful, glory to God, is, is how Jesus brought this to pass. Uh, I remember that same month my mom passed away, I began to notice there were these little cards placed all over the school, you know, uh, in the administration and on the bulletin boards. They were kind of scattered everywhere, probably always there. I just hadn't noticed it till that moment. God brought it to the light. And I realized they said Extreme Youth Church on them. And I was like, what's that? I, I got kind of excited. But you see, I probably never would have actually gone to the church had somebody not come up to me, one of my peers, come up to me and talked to me about Jesus, shared about the church, and said, hey, you should come this Wednesday, you can sit with me. And so that Wednesday, I took them up on their offer. <laughs> I walked into the church, and as soon as I walked through those doors, I was actually by myself at that moment, I remember feeling the presence of God 
And it was so overwhelming and so powerful. I remembered thinking that this is what I've been searching for my entire life. In addition to that, I was greeted by smiles and hugs. So much joy in that place, so many friendly faces. I was like, wow, this is a true family. And that night, I, uh, Pastor Johnny was preaching and I couldn't, I couldn't help it. I, I came to the altar, I ran to the altar and I gave my heart to Jesus. Everything turned around, nothing was the same. I got involved in fine arts, I got involved uh, in crew and I became an evangelist at my school starting to invite people to church myself. Uh, praise God, fast forward. 15 years now have gone by and I'm still reaching the schools. I'm still sharing the gospel. And on top of that, my dad and my sister are both saved and filled with the wow. Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. The promises of God are true and real. But none of that would have happened if somebody a peer at my public high school hadn't invited me to church. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's give them a great thank you. That's why you can't, you can't underestimate the power of even simply an invitation. The power of just inviting someone to get close enough to come into contact with Jesus. That that could just unlock not only a miracle in that moment for, the, for that person, but think about what could happen as God would use you to be somebody's wake-up call. I want you to grab that card that we talked about earlier that has a slot for us to write down some names. And if you've not yet written down any names, we're going to pray over that card. We're going to pray that God uh, would help us to, first of all, begin to cry out for these people on a regular basis, maybe especially over these next seven, eight, nine, ten days that we would pray every day. Maybe you'll put this somewhere where you'll see it in a dash or in a bathroom. And when you see it, you'll begin to cry out for those people that need a spiritual wake-up call. So we're going to pray that God would mobilize us to do that, but we're also going to pray that they'll be ripe and ready for the harvest, and that when we in, invite them, that, that they're going to experience the, the kind of, of, of radical change that uh, a lot of us in this room know exactly what it's all about. So take that card. If you don't have any names yet, uh, maybe before the day's over, as God kind of puts the people on your heart, Go ahead and go through that process. I know that you can make all those be in my head, but there's just something about writing it down. So if you haven't yet, just do that today. But let's hold these cards. If you, if you have one there, hold these cards all across our campuses and let's pray over these together right now. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for these that God, maybe you've put in our life for a reason. It's been strategic all along. You've given us influence there for a reason, to be somebody's wake-up call. And so God, we cry out for them now. We cry out for those that, that you're calling us to reach, God. Those that maybe aren't even on the paper yet, God. Illuminate to our hearts and our minds who we could reach for your glory, whose life could be radically changed, who could come into contact with you. Maybe they won't if somebody doesn't help. And so God, we say, here am I, send me. I'll be the one that puts them in contact with you. And so God, help us, help us, help us. With every head bowed and every eye closed and nobody looking around, I just can't close this service out without giving some people that are hearing this message right now in your, we're talking about 
reaching out to somebody else so that somebody else can experience revival. And if we're being honest, and I encourage you to be honest, if we're being honest, you go, I, I don't know that I'm in revival. Like, I feel like I need, maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you don't know what that's like to have Christ come alive inside of you. And maybe it was a long time ago and you did, you were in right relationship with God, but there's been a series of decisions or circumstances and you find yourself spiritually dead, spiritually asleep. And you'd say, you know what, pastor, pray for me today because I need revival in my own heart and my own life. I need forgiveness of my sin. I need to establish a right or reestablish a right relationship with Jesus. If that's you all over this building at all of our campuses with, with every head bowed, every head closed, if that's you, just say, pray for me as we close this service that I need Jesus.